0: Don't be thrown off by the fact that Matt Abdu does barbecue. He's actually a classically trained chef that has worked side-by-side with legends in the kitchen. His story spans from the time he was a child and has had quite a journey. We'll touch on some earlier life, although you can hear about all that on other podcasts. But we're going on the record with Matt about Pig Beach and the ideas that crafted why leaving an extremely well-known New York City restaurant to throw meats in a smoker was a good idea. This is on the record with Matt Abdu of Pig Beach.
1: I, I started cooking when I was 15 years old and where I'm from in upstate New York, Utica, New York, for Dean and Jason Ola at Cafe Canole. Uh, went to college at SUNY Geneseo. Worked in uh, the Statesman Bar and Grill there, which is you know, the towny bar of, of college. Great. Went to culinary school right after college to the Culinary Student America in Hyde Park, New York. Did my internship for Mark Folly at Pagal Restaurant in the Theater District of Boston. Graduated culinary school. Went back to work for Mark Folly at Pagal. Uh, kind of got to a point I didn't want to be there anymore, and uh, he gave me the opportunity to be his chef at 24 years old at his Italian trattoria in the north end of Boston on Hanover Street called Marco, playing his name. So I was a chef there for about four years until I just felt like I outgrew Boston. I wanted to put myself in deeper culinary waters, and I went to work for Mark Ladner at Del Posto Restaurant. I was there for 10 years, about 10 years, a little less than 10 years, but I was for my last four years there, I was the chef de cuisine. Had an incredible culinary journey there. I got to hang out with Mario Batali, work with Emeril Lagasse, Bobby Flay, Food Network Connections. I mean, it, it was absolutely surreal. In my time working at Del Posto, I got to meet my uh, good friend and business partner with Pig Beach, Rob Schogger. We went on this famous barbecue trip to Austin, Texas, just to explore, uh, with Mark Ladner actually, to explore if there were any correlations between the Italian barbecue in the region of Abruzzo and American barbecue. Turns out there really isn't much correlation whatsoever, but. On that trip I got to meet Rob Schauger and we bonded uh, very heavily over our love for food and drink on that trip and he would invite me out to his home on the weekends to do barbecue at his house in Sag Harbor. Turns out we both loved it and we're both pretty good at it and uh, we started entering into some local competitions to which we were winning in Long Island and Staten Island and then he somehow to get us into Memphis in May, the World Championship Barbecue Competition And my first year down there, we got second place in whole hog and first place in poultry, and the Southerners went ballistic, as so did we. So we used that momentum to open up Pig Beach Barbecue as a pop-up in the summer of 2016. I was still currently at Del Poso at that time, sort of transitioning. And after a great, successful summer from both our landlords and our patrons, they wanted us to come back, and we decided to make it a year-round gig. And I left Del Poso to be here at Pig Beach uh, full-time. An incredible journey since, and I, that's
0: the story of
2: Big
1: Beach. <laughs> we can wrap this up and we can go now, guys. Yeah,
0: no, I, I mean, you—that's
2: you, how you wrap 25 years of restaurant experience yeah. up in about 120 seconds. Uh, it's pretty, yeah,
1: right. I mean, that's there's the a, there's so much that could go into that 120 seconds of just the shenanigans and whatnot to get to where I was here today. But you know, it's been it's been a crazy ride, man. I mean, and I I love love loves fine dining. It was the majority of my career up until I started doing barbecue. But the thing that would just break my heart is that. I'm half Lebanese and I'm half Italian. And my entire life I grew up with food. Food was sort of like the epicenter of love. It was the ultimate rep- representation of love that my grandmother and my mother would give to us. It was either sactain or manja. Both basically just mean eat, manj, love, manj, be manj, happy. Manj, right? manj. And food was just such, it was, it was just love. It was culture. It was everything for our family. And I grew up with it. So when I was working at a place like Del Posto where the minimum price tag would be anywhere around $250 per person or more it would kind of break my heart because so many people wanted to support me and so many people wanted to come and see how I was doing and check out this crazy like venture adventure I was on like work with Mario Vitali and all these f- fun cool things I got to do and I would just feel horrible that if a fourth top came in and their check was like $1,200 <laughs> and then on top of that there was like tax and gratuity and you know my dear friends or my family would leave $1,500 later and I was like oh my god this is crazy but that's one of the reasons why I loved barbecue so much is that it's all demographics. It's all walks of life, and it's a price point that is achievable or attainable for for really anybody. And I mean, you can come into Pig Beach and get completely full and have a couple of beers for like thirty bucks, and be super. I mean, we sell canned beers for five dollars. You can get a pulled pork sandwich for nine bucks, and you know you're you're in a happy place, just hanging out outside and the on the picnic tables, the beach umbrellas, just eating and drinking and having a good time. So it's been more fun for me in that aspect of things. I certainly miss the fine dining culture of just sort of the intensity and the attention to detail. But what's cool about what we're doing now at Pig Beach is that I've brought still with me all of that OCD and and just attention to detail of fine dining to try to make the barbecue the best that we possibly can here at Pig Beach.
0: And uh, I mean, You have been in so many different places where there's guys like you've lived four guys' lifetimes. And (laughs) does it show?
1: Radio people (laughs) listening. Does it show? Oh, you can't see me. We like Google my face. You'll see a great transition from Marco to where I am now. I mean, we say it a lot though too that
0: it's almost hindering for somebody not to get out there and see other places. And everywhere you go, you have to. Everywhere you go has to be drastically different in the way that they operate and the type of foods that go out, no?
1: Yeah, but that what's really great about that journey is that if you're smart, you pay attention to all of it, the good and the bad and the ugly, and you learn from every transition to every place that you've ever been to so that when you get to a point where I'm at in my career that you have a better understanding of how to just pivot or relate or make things work or be a little bit more empathetic or understanding or reasonable, for lack of a better word, to know different scenarios and how that could potentially play out. So every step along the journey of where I've gone to where I am now has, you know, has a huge impact on what I'm doing today. And I think I'm, I'm better for it. And certainly many of those that are perhaps a few years behind me that are exploring a, a career in the culinary path, it's not an easy one. You know, it's, it's not an easy one. No, it, it's crazy. It's I mean, definitely not an understatement. Yeah. I, I, anybody that's ever cooked in a professional kitchen as a line cook or as a dishwasher or as a prep cook or as a porter or as a sous chef or an executive chef or front of the house server, captain, busser, bartender, this industry's tough. It's tough. I mean, it doesn't it's not like the most lucrative position one could ever pursue. Most people do it because they either truly truly love food and cooking and creating smiles and putting smiles on people's faces. Or it happens to be a fallout for people that might have had a misstep in life that are trying to retransition into the world, and you know, because the culinary industry, we always need people. We always need people to work, and sometimes those people come with culinary experience, and sometimes they don't. And ironically enough, sometimes the people that come with no culinary experience, if you get them at the right point in their lives, end up being better employees just because they're this amazing blank canvas that you can sort of mold into what exactly it is that you want. And as we said earlier all those transitions, the life stories that bring me to where I am today, it's more challenging to change my mindset on something now than it is for me to change the mindset of somebody that's just starting up. So it's, it definitely has its perks in that. Well, your mindset
0: comes from being in so many different environments where you have hands-on experience in seeing, you know, the pitfalls of making one decision versus another decision. And you can kind of formulate an informed, decision-making process based upon what you've seen
1: work yeah. before, no? Well, thank you. I, I, well, I, I'm, I'm hoping that everything <laughs> I'm doing at this point in my career is definitely formulated and being as a result of experience. Sometimes though, which is really crazy about this industry is that, you know, you might go to sleep one night and wake up the next day and it's, oh my God, shut down for two weeks. And you're throwing a curveball <laughs> at you that yeah. you've never in a million years planned for, thought of could happen. And then you're sitting on your livelihood, your business, your blood, sweat, and tears, and every penny you've ever saved to put into it, being threatened by something that you've had absolutely no control over. And you're just sitting back and being like, oh my God, what do I do now? And one of the scariest things for me about all of that was before the pandemic hit at Pig Beach in the the peak of summer, we employ around 100 people, which is crazy for one restaurant to employ 100 100 people. I mean, it's it's a a lot lot, lot lot of of people. And for many of those listening that have any sort of insight into restaurants or cooking or working in in the hospitality industry many of these people that you work with become your family you see them more than you physically see your family we're here for 10 to 16 hours a day I mean there's no like nine to five punch in punch out see you later it's a very it's it's a hard industry and you really got to love what you do and we see these people more than we see our families so when these doors got closed down and everyone was just like oh it's just two weeks I'm like okay two weeks no problem. Anybody can muster up two weeks. Being naive, I think our entire country was naive <laughs> to the fact that nobody ever knew or expected that two weeks to turn into, what, six months? And you get scared. You get worried. I mean, I, I would look at all... I would call my guys, my, my kitchen guys, my employees, and say, how you doing? What do you need? I go, nobody knows what's going on. I wish I had more information for you. I mean, in, in the middle of all this happening, we were a month away from opening up our new location in Long Island City, Queens. Back out postponed. That's going to actually be happening this summer pretty soon. So those listening, get ready for Pig Beach, Long Island City, Queens happening uh, summer of 2021. It's going to be an awesome spot. But I would call these guys up and be like, look, you have keys. The food in the walk-in is just going to go bad. Like you need food for your family, go grab it. There's rice, there's beans and dry storage. Take whatever you need because we don't have any idea when we're getting back in there. But a lot of these guys, you know, Sally, didn't qualify for any unemployment. They didn't have anything they don't have like a mom or dad's house out in the Hamptons or in upstate New York where they could drive back to to just cozy up for a little bit I mean they had a grin and bear it down in the city and had nothing and and it it's when you when you see the people that you care about employees become much more than employees in the rest in the hospitality industry in the restaurant industry they, they truly do and you, and you you get worried about them so I'm just happy to be sitting with you guys here today knowing that we survived it, made it through, and all those guys that had to be laid off for that long period of time are all back now working, and we're slowly gathering and rebuilding our labor force uh, to get us back to where we are, and it's just been, to all of you guys that are listening, and to everybody that's been to Pig Beach, thank you so much for supporting us, for coming. It means the world to us and more than you could ever possibly know, so we appreciate that from the bottom of our hearts to get us back to where we are today. A lot of
0: owners really struggled with their finances going through everything through the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of people tried raising money for the employees. Yep, I'm sure you did something similar of such and, you know, using a GoFundMe or whatnot. And I think somebody that maybe doesn't have as much of a business background probably struggled a little bit more as far as dealing with their balance sheets and figuring out how to allocate money, what to cut off instantly as far as monthly payments go. And paying this, playing this like balancing act. And
1: well, that, that's a that's an excellent point that you bring up. And it was a hard act to follow because, again, we didn't know. When this thing first hit, everyone was like, two weeks, that's nothing, whatever. We'll pause for two weeks, we'll put some stuff in the freezer, we'll tell the guys just relax, you know, two weeks. But the second that two weeks turned into a month, it was like, all right, we have to cancel all of our reoccurring bills that we're not using. The cable's got to get canceled because cable in, in a large restaurant is. Not cable yeah. at home. It's like $5,000 a month to yeah. have cable to play all those sports games that everyone wants to come and watch, right? It's not 120 bucks of what Spectrum is. It's like this ridiculous thing.
0: Yeah, 120 bucks is still ridiculous. Uh, also, you you though, know, we could have an entire side <laughs> yeah. podcast
1: of my rage towards <laughs> what it costs for TV and cable and internet, but that's another note. And I'm sure everybody listening can absolutely relate to that. Yeah. The best part is, oh, it's only $49.99 to start. And then if you're like, cool, this is great. And then your year clips, and then it's like, oh, your next bill is $250. You're like, what just <laughs> happened? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, but anyway, side note. But yeah, cutting off those reoccurring bills was... As soon as we were like stopping, like the cable bills, the Aloha, like the POS terminals, you have to pay a monthly fee on. You have to cancel that. You have to cancel as many things as you possibly can cancel. Um, On top of that, you know, you're laying off all your staff. Uh, The one thing that we wanted to make sure that we had enough money to keep going for was health benefits, health insurance for the team that got it through us, because we don't want them to be left without health insurance. So that was like the the last spigot that we went as far as we could before that had to get turned off. Um, but the biggest and thing that saved not, that's us... Not a cheap, that's not a cheap... Baby. No, is health. health care is, is one of the biggest expenses in a, in a restaurant, which a lot of people don't realize or know. They just want Overling their health it. care, which is yeah. important. I want my health care too, but it's it's a big expense. The way New York State sort of regulates health care, um, it costs a lot to the small business owner to provide that for uh, the people that want
3: it. But that's big, great. That you were able to try at least to keep that going while you could. Well, yeah. I mean, again, it's
1: that family thing. Like We know yeah. that some of our people had reoccurring medical things that they needed this for. And if they didn't have it, you know, what's the alternative? You know, it's just, it was scary. This whole stuff was scary. But one of the biggest things that I think truly saved Big Beach was we were in a position with our landlords, or rather our landlords were in a position where we were able to negotiate with them to get into a percentage rent deal during the scariest times of when this was all going down. Um, Base rent for a space like this in Brooklyn is an outrageous amount of money for what we were paying previously, more so than than what you would ever think it is. I mean, think of what you pay for rent for like a one bedroom apartment here in the city and you times it by 10 and that's what like a business costs. I mean, it's it's insane, but they were in a position financially where they could work out a percentage rent deal with us, which really saved us because if we were supposed to be paying monthly checks for what we, for our stable rent here, there's no way we'd still be here. So to our landlords pilot group, thank you for being understanding and helping us through this. It really meant the world to us and uh, you know, can't thank you enough for that part. Um, but that was really it. And, and I think that makes the biggest difference for, between the businesses that survived and the businesses that had to close were those that were able to work out those deals with their landlords. And as far as all the, the relief that was given, sadly, none was actually given to landlords. Like landlords got no reprieve. They still had to pay their mortgages on yep. their properties. But you had all these tenants that were like, I'm not paying rent. I can't. <clears throat> so now what? It just sort of like bubbles and percolates. So because our landlords were in a position financially within whatever their mortgage payment was, whether I mean I don't know, but it, I'm assuming that they didn't have a huge high monthly mortgage payment they had to do every month that they were able to work with us to get it to where it financially made sense to keep us here because they knew I think if we were to leave the space, it's a hard sell to get somebody to come in to a, a space that's been truly like retrofitted to be a barbecue restaurant on the banks of the Guanas Canal. So it, it it was just it worked out across the board and that's really what what saved us.
2: It's a difference thinking when land- some landlords don't think long term like that, and they're just thinking in the in the short term. Yeah, definitely well, and, makes- and
1: also too, some of them just can't. I mean, some right. just like all of us right, right. having bills to pay. They they had bills to pay too, and sometimes if uh, you know a tenant defaults, I think there's some sort of like tax incentive or tax break for that landlord or reprieve in that end. But there isn't a reprieve if they're still in the space. So it's just hard. I mean, this this pandemic hit everybody, and nobody really came out of it without some sort of scary war story as a result of it. And, you know, the worst thing is, is that we've all known somebody that's probably passed away sadly from it. And it's just, it was a really scary time for so many of so many of our lives, uh, not only just financially and business, but like emotionally and personally, we all knew somebody that, that got COVID and you just started praying every night, oh my God, please stay safe. Oh my God, I hope they get through this. It was, it was a wild time to live through.
0: A lot of chefs, go to culinary school it's like the goal right like for some people yeah you didn't you said I'm gonna go learn business
1: well that's that's a funny story so I'm one of four boys my parents are my heroes if I can become half the man my father is by the time I die I know I will have lived a successful life my dad worked two jobs was a seventh grade math teacher for 33 years same school same classroom (laughs) during that time he built out of my uncle's garage uh, home security business basically like security alarms in your homes or whatnot that grew to be a pretty decent sized business for central new york you know for a small business owner nothing extravagant we we, we grew up you know very modest but yeah, uh,
0: your car seat wasn't in the back of a lambo
1: no it certainly wasn't i was i was a th- I was a third child so i was the guy that was like laying on the floor in the back of the uh, the wood panel blue minivan while my older brother chris had the back seat that he pushed me onto the floor kind of thing that was yeah we had the blue minivan That was the jam back in the day. Uh, But um, where was I going with this? I completely lost my train of thought. The blue panel, the wood panel minivan totally got me all off track. As
0: going to school for business. Oh,
1: for business, yeah. So my father wanted, obviously, he knew I loved to cook. I was cooking since I was five. The very first food memory I have of cooking was my dad making pancakes for me on Sunday morning. And he flipped it in the pan and I thought it was the most fascinating thing (laughs) on the planet, right? So I'm like five, maybe I was eight. I don't know, I was little. And I just wanted to do that. So, 100 pancakes later, 100 Sundays later, you know, oh, on the ceiling, on the floor, on the stove, <laughs> making a mess everywhere, I finally landed one and thought it was like the greatest thing ever. So, I would just cook all the time. You can ask my mother what the mess I made. God bless him for supporting me doing all these messes. And, you know, some things were good, and most of them were disgusting and <laughs> terrible experiments. But that's how you we, learn. We had a lot of fun doing it. But my father, you know, having four boys, wanted his legacy to all of his children to be our education. And he said, Matt, just in case this is a phase, why don't you go and get a bachelor's, see how that goes. At least that way you have something to fall back onto. You get a four-year college experience, which he's also like it's very important that you have that. And we go from there. And if you still want to cook, we'll talk about culinary school afterwards. So I went to SUNY Geneseo, State University of New York at Geneseo. It's just south of Rochester, New York. I got an incredible four-year college experience there I got my bachelor's in business, business administration met some of the greatest friends uh to, of whom I'm still very close with today which is amazing and uh I cooked all throughout college too I just had the but I was I was a kid in the freshman dorm that had this sort of kitchenette in the suite area like in the common area where I was making like baked ziti dinners for the floor <laughs> my freshman year it was like once a month like Maddie's making baked ziti I mean, I don't know why the hell I was making mexi, <laughs> But I could feed a lot of people with it for like yeah. $5. So that's probably why I was doing it.
3: Makes you the popular kid on campus for sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. I just wish I had, uh, yeah, well, I would go down <laughs> another rabbit hole with my my uh, confidence with the ladies at that point in my life. But that's a whole other side note. So yeah, so I ended up going to culinary school afterwards, but definitely business. Uh, I mean, a, a bachelor's in business administration in, a, in college wasn't exactly, it was great to have sort of like a base understanding of you know, debits and credits and, and P&L statements and things like that. I failed accounting twice, not realizing that it
0: was debits and credits, pretty much. And the second time at the end of the semester, I was just
1: like, why didn't you just tell me it was just a balancing thing with math? Yeah. Like, I could have understood it. that. Right. Well, I think what's really interesting, as you said that, about education in general, is that the true special teachers, the ones that really, we really remember, are the ones that are able to find a way to relate those sorts of things to all of us, because everybody learns things differently. I'm very much a visual physical learner like if you show me something I will learn it a lot better than if you just talk it out to me so if you're able to find that way of correlating it to the person you're able to really connect with them you're like whoa this is way easier than I ever thought it was it was it's not so scary it's not so daunting and what's interesting about that statement is that I find that to be true with cooking too and everybody has a way of learning differently and if you're able to find the best way to relate that way to that person that's learning it you can really make a difference in their lives and have them be better off for it too, which is really cool.
0: Cooking needs to be something that's kind of hands on as you're learning it, no? I mean, you're not it, sitting it, at
1: a textbook. It, text is, it is and it isn't. I yeah. mean, A lot of the stuff you learn in culinary school is like reading a textbook. Absolutely, and they give you a bunch of recipes things, and they make, until, you, make you understand them. Yeah, until you actually physically do something, you have to read about it typically, or somebody has to tell you about it. And there's that famous quote from, uh, what is it, The Matrix? There's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Yeah. Like physically knowing, reading about something and actually doing it are two totally different things. But some people learn because they read in a textbook. They're like, okay, I need to know that I need to bring this up to 125 degrees and then let it rest. And that's cool. And and they learn that. And then they they apply that to their cooking. Other people are like, okay, I need to put this steak on a grill and cook it until it feels the right way. Yeah. And, and then I'm comfortable with it knowing that if I push on it like this or if I put a cake tester pin in it like this and hold it to my... My lower lip, I know it's done. People learn differently. Uh, I
2: like to use the example like when the bartenders come out of bartending school. They're like, I got my certificate. And then you put them for a trail on a Friday night and they they just completely fall (laughs) (laughs) apart. They could tell you what's in every single drink, but couldn't make it. That's That's like the fresh recruit out of culinary (laughs) school
3: who's like, oh, I just graduated culinary school. I know everything now. Oh, God. I know. And they're
1: God love every and all culinary graduate from every and all culinary school that comes out. But I will tell you this, when you're moving to New York City, take that uh, humility pill before you walk in the door oh, yeah. of thinking everything that you know. You might have been the best in your class, but New York City is probably the most cutthroat, most talented city in the world when it comes to cooks and people that know what they're doing. And when you're coming for it straight out of culinary <laughs> school, you don't know I anything. applaud that. However, the people that have learned of the school of hard knocks of just literally working in kitchens since they were 18 in New York City, and they might only be 22, <laughs> Uh, we'll probably be cooking circles around you because they've just been doing it longer. Yeah. And that was one of the greatest things. I mean, I, I worked with this kid, Jeffrey Palma. He was like 18 years old at Del Posto when he came in. Started working with us first there. And I don't even know how he got the job. I think it was a friend of a friend or maybe his, his dad or somebody knew Ladner. But Ladner's like, all right, you're going to be the risotto cook. You just put him in the corner and he made risotto. Every night when the ris- order risotto came in, because we did our risottos to order, believe it or not, a 24-minute pickup, it's <laughs> – <laughs> but we made it to order. And uh, for those of you listening, a 24-minute pickup means it takes 24 minutes before that plate of food is going to be served to the guests. So if somebody's ordering in a risotto course, order fire, that means that's what they're getting as soon as they order or sit down. It will be 20 20- minimum of 24 minutes minimum. before that food gets to a plate – than the time it takes to travel from that window or where it's walking to your table. So, so
3: for reference, average pickup is like four or five minutes. Correct. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> if you want the pace of uh, dinner yeah. service to keep moving along, yeah, four <laughs> or five minutes, fire this, it should be in the window in four to five minutes or else everything's going to take too long people are going to yeah. get dismantled.
3: 24-minute um, pickup. Um, but I'm Jeffrey
1: started when he was 18 years old, No, knew very, very little about cooking, and just was eager and hungry, and he ended up becoming... Uh, like the executive sous chef at Del Posto by the time I left. I mean, the, kid's, the kid was a savant, and then he continued to work with Jeff Katz, who was the partner and general manager at Del Posto over at Crown Shy when that place opened up um, to be you know, one of his right-hand guys over there too. I mean, it's, it's just awesome to see that happen when people get into the industry without that sort of culinary degree or background, but still just love it and deep dive into that school of hard knocks to get to where they are today.
3: Speaking on that uh, culinary school eagerness, I actually applied for an externship out of culinary school to Del Posto, and you guys didn't accept me, so I ended up going to Dovetail. So I was there Dovetail's a great restaurant though. Fantastic restaurant. So I was there, extern for three months, and then I still didn't get the job afterwards. work. <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't accept you for an externship? Yeah. So this was uh, 2014, summer 2014. 2014. Yeah. yeah. And now we do podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, that's all right. Podcasts are probably more yeah, fun. Exactly.
1: At least this way you're sitting in an air conditioning unit versus slaving over a hot grill. Maybe that was
3: better off. Oh, well, I'm
1: sorry that didn't, nah, didn't work out for you. Life works
3: out. Life works out. It's yeah. just funny to not be sitting across the that's table That's a, a me. bummer.
0: <laughs> so in, in this whole time that you were up at school cooking in the kitchenette, were you doing an internship or no. something at that same time, or no. you're just enjoying college? I was life?
1: enjoying college, I was full in college. I mean, I, I bartended at that bar of the Statesman, which was like a tiny bar two nights a week. Um, every now and again, when the cook would call out, I'd go back in the back. I mean, it was like a, I mean, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was very much a towny, sort of low end college bar where I mean, the kitchen was a grill in two fryers and like a sandwich unit station, and it was mostly making. Statesman's Burgers, which were like the best hamburger ever up until like moving New York City and waffle fries And you'd sell like 150 orders of, of that in a day And if a cook called out, he's like sure Karen, I'll, the owner of the bar, her name is Karen Well like, sure Karen, I'll go jump in the kitchen, like whatever, can I still get my tips from the bar? She's like whatever Maddie, we'll work it out
0: <laughs> I had a, a, re- a relevant experience to that, I mean being a bar guy, I'm supposed to be making drinks Sure enough was working in a tiki bar and there was like a strike that was going on with all the cooks, so nobody showed up in the morning. Sure enough, a poor old guy came from Brooklyn to like come out to this place where he said he met his wife years ago. So all he wanted to do was have the linguine and clams, and I was like, I think I got, I got, got this. <laughs> I ran into the back. I start like. Did boiling you have clams? Yeah, they were okay. like they were all there. Right, well, so you're, you're, you're,
1: as long as you have the clams, you're at a good starting point. Yeah. So like <laughs> I admire your eagerness
0: out of this. And I was out? like, how
1: do I do this as fast as
0: possible? Where I've never been in this kitchen before. Did you
1: have water boiling already?
0: I pulled out a frying pan. <laughs> that way the water would boil faster because this there's more awesome. surface area, right? <laughs> yeah. So I throw the linguine in and I tell him, hey, it's gonna be all right. I got this. <laughs> sure enough, I came out. The guy ate the whole thing. Hey, right? We we settled it.
3: Okay. kill anybody or go. Hospitality.
1: Well, that is hospitality. You know what else is really amazing about a dining experience is that so much of what we learn to enjoy is nostalgia. So if you're able to come close to replicating a moment in time in someone's life that they have a memory, like this gentleman came in and was like, I got married here or had my engagement dinner here or whatever, and all I want is my linguine clams from what I ate here. He's already at a point where he's coming in with the memory that's putting him into a happy place. Not to not to take away from your incredible culinary <laughs> schools of boiling linguine in a frying pan Well I making just, it all I, happen. I knew what was going on on the back end, and this guy was just
0: so happy, and he had this old little happy face, and I was just like, we I gotta, can't ruin we this gotta make can't, this. can't
1: take that smile off the yeah. of happy face.
0: No, and but
1: that is what we
0: do here, right? Is, we kind of go above and beyond nonstop, and yeah. yeah, there is some cutoff points. I think especially now, we're seeing more kind of cutoffs happen on what we cannot do through coming out of COVID, and crazy requests throughout all of that as if it wasn't hard enough showing up to work as it was just to make you know a little bit of cash come in yeah uh we're sitting in a monstrosity of a a building
1: though and there's a lot of moving pieces to this but it wasn't always this no so when we first came into this space so pig beach in in its entirety is a a little over 18,000 square feet which is massive. Yeah. A lot. In, in context, El Posto was 24,000 square feet. And <laughs> that's, that was like the biggest restaurant. I, I mean, it was incredible. I was like the Cadillac of all Cadillacs of restaurants, Del Posto. And I was very spoiled there, having every piece of equipment you could ever possibly fathom to have with a full-time overnight crew of porters to make every piece of stainless steel shine and look brand new every time you walked in the front door. When we opened up Pig Beach back in 2016, it was merely an outdoor pop-up. We came to this space. My business partner, Rob Schauger, brought us out here, and he he brings me up to basically where the gate is now. He said, this is it. (laughs) And the building that's attached, that's now our indoor spot, was was not accessible. It was like a a condemned, broken down, old, I think, trolley way station or trolley repair shop or something of that nature. And he brought me back here. Now, mind you, I'm the chef de cuisine at a (laughs) four-star New York Times Italian restaurant, and... He brings me to this parking lot. It's broken gravel. It The space was an old halal food truck commissary. So that's what was done here prior to us coming in. And there was dumpsters. There was barbed wire wound up like tumbleweeds. A couple of cars propped up on cinder blocks. I mean, just garbage, like,
3: all over the place. It's kind of sketchy in general. <laughs> Ske- super sketchy in general. I mean, this
1: neighborhood of where we are now, before we opened, nobody came here. Like, it, the Ubers and, and Lyfts, like, they didn't here and now during the summertime it's an uber hot spot for for guests that could come and get dropped off and picked up but we walked into the space and i look at him i go dude you sure I'm like this is it's like no you gotta picture it we'll put a <laughs> put a, a food pavilion on that side we'll put a bar on that side it'll be all outside we'll get some picnic tables some umbrellas it'll be awesome i'm like if you say so <laughs> i mean so we literally we opened up pig beach as a pop-up we had our old hickory pit that was on a trailer our, our mobile unit We had a 10 by 10 pop-up tent with three walls that was it we built a little dry storage unit we had in this this area over here where the prep kitchen is they had a small like eight by eight walk-in box that was for all like the halal food carts and um that was our walk-in for refrigeration every morning i would come in i'd get here at like 6 a.m i would put the meat on i'd put it on like a furniture dolly hand truck and i'd walk it all the way across the parking lot to which we got paved at this point, so I wasn't pushing a cart on gravel, thank God. Um, and I go all the way over to the other end, and I put the meat on. And if I needed to make, you know, rib glaze or I needed to make rib rub, I made it for my little dry storage unit underneath my tent over there. We had a, It was all kosher, guys. We had the health department. There was hand sinks. Don't worry. I'm not. We weren't doing anything, like, too crazy. We had a hand sink and a three-pot sink over on the attached to the fence over on that far side of the wall that was under the tent. And we just made it happen. I mean, it was miserable, <laughs> but we made it happen. And I was literally going from being like, "Why am I here?" I'm leaving the most incredible, sought after, <laughs> you know, chef position of a time yeah. cooking in the city, and now I'm in a parking lot cooking barbecue. Have
2: just- you seen that concept somewhere and like inspired him to be like, "No, I need to do this here"? Because I do that a lot of times where I'll be somewhere else and I'll see like just a, like an outdoor area, and well, I, I need think, one of these. I
1: think the inspiration for for finding this space was first, it was available right. um, for the right price. As for most opportunities. That's <laughs> how it happens. It was, it was cheap. <laughs> uh, and we had seen sort of a similar concept in our trip to Austin with a lot of the food trucks, because there's this huge, incredible food truck scene in Austin, Texas, near where we were staying, where you'd have like 20 food trucks lined up, making basically everything and anything you possibly think of. Some of the best tacos I ever had in my life were from one of these food trucks. I wish I could remember the name of it. Uh, but we just saw how that could work, and we were just hopeful that we were coming off of a big win in Memphis in May, knew that what we were making was a good product, and we said, let's give it a shot, and see how it goes. So that's kind of what the catalyst was to become where we are now. So fast forward two years after that.
0: Don't even fast
1: forward. Can we <laughs> okay. stop for a second?
0: Sure. <laughs> like, there's still, there's a lot here. Like, you guys just decided, this is you and your business partner. That we're taking over just this like vacant-ish shady piece of land. Yep. You start bringing it up to speed or expectations a little bit. Like, did you you had a business plan like put together? Do you have some expectancy of what you would make? Or you were just like not really. There
1: there wasn't like we're gonna do X amount of covers at X check average to sort of understand what sales would be weekly sales, monthly sales, annual sales. We had no idea. We just knew that when we first opened up the place was actually called Swan Dive, not Pig Beach. And the, uh, landlords sort of ran the bar end and took the bar sales. And we literally just did food and only took the food sales. And you guys knowing working in the restaurant industry, the place where you make your money <laughs> right. is not on the food. You yeah. make it on the right. beverage.
0: The only thing that makes that worse is doing barbecue.
1: Correct. Yeah. When you're, <laughs> when everything is center over protein and high food costs. Yep. Uh, yeah. All those good numbers. So like, what, <laughs> like what was the rent though? It was had to be so low where no, you th- didn't even I think, think we're about it. I we paying like five grand a month to have okay. the space back then. I mean, it wasn't much. It wasn't yeah. much. And, and honestly, we weren't making any money the first year doing it. We, it was literally an experiment to see if we could do it. And if we could do it, we would take it to the next step to the next level. And you know, I, I think honestly, um, you know, my business partner, Rob is a, he's a successful finance guy, did well for himself. And he basically individually funded, The first two years of getting this place to where it was is just a pop up with the expectation that he knew he wasn't going to make a ton of money. The hope was to break even or if we lost a little, no big deal. But the more important part was to get the name out there, to get the brand out there and get the transition set up for me to leave Del Posto so that I could have a job to continue to work at and pay my bills and still pursue this new project at Pig Beach.
0: And the first year is the big one. You get over that, and you kind of just look back, and you say, we did it. Well,
1: I think the first five years are the big ones. (laughs) I mean, there's so many, and especially in this place. I mean, we went through so many highs and lows, um, a lot of emotional heartbreak. Like, my my brother-in-law, my wife's twin brother, came on board to be our executive chef and tragically passed away at 36 at a time with a one-year-old daughter. So we went through that. Um, Jeff, we love you. We miss you every day. I, I mean, that was... Tra- traumatizing. It still is traumatizing. We went through building out this indoor space um, in year three which at the same time of building out the indoor space we were opening up that restaurant Pig Bleaker on the corner of Bleeker Street in Thompson which we had a great two and a half year run there just the numbers didn't work out. The space was too small to bring in the revenue we needed to meet the rent and you want to talk about high rents. Try to, try to get a restaurant space in the West Village or the Village or whatever that area is. It was kind of Incredible.
0: It's super important to be able to look at the finances of a place and deciding if it's something that could wind up coming up oh, a little higher totally. we can
1: make some money, yeah. or is
0: it time to kill this thing ahead of time and Well that know.
1: that was a smart play and as heartbreaking as it was for me personally, I mean the, the, the smart financial play was to close it down. You know, we weren't making money there, we were losing money and the we were doing great here in Brooklyn, but a lot of the, the profits we were making from Brooklyn were going to sustain Keep bleaker open and we knew that we just couldn't continue to do that so as much of a blow to my ego as it was to close it down you know you just you have to do what you have to do for the sanity and the, and the safety of the, the bigger picture and the business at hand so we closed that down came back here um, that sort of all happened while you know when my brother-in-law passed away which was just really really challenging for me personally and for my family and then we, we, I came here full-time, and then we started up that machine to do Long Island City, which was going incredibly well. We raised a bunch of money with investors, got a lot of people excited about the project because of the excitement of what we were able to create and produce here in Brooklyn.
0: So much easier to get money on board when somebody sees... Well, once well, you have an established yeah. business. Yeah, Don't,
1: don't say easy. <laughs> well, I'm saying easier. I, mean, I guess easier. Easier yeah. is it certainly... Well, the, the, the way we were able to get our original group of investors for, for Brooklyn and for Pig Bleaker was twofold. Rob had a lot of connections. It was basically a lot of his buddies that he worked with, you know, that were willing to give some money to, to get this project going. And we didn't really spend much to get Big Beach Brooklyn up and running. We have to thank the fibros in like this business a lot too. Like the
0: finance bros are there oh, yeah. being able to finance a lot of these dreams that yeah. us and, idiots
1: have. Yep. And they're also <laughs> our best customers that yeah. come and eat and drink like Vikings. And that's what we <laughs> love. <laughs> buying the bottles of Brunello and Barolos, you know, and, yeah. and uh, having the beef rib and you know, buying t-shirts yeah. and taking food back to their office kind of thing. So thank you to all of you guys for supporting us in that regards of things. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, it's there were so many highs and lows, and the journey's only just begun. I mean, we're at a point now with the Pig Beach brand that's it's a really, really exciting cusp to see where it kind of goes from here. Scary thing f- at the moment is it's really, really hard to get staff right now because of the incentives for people to not work. It's been it's been challenging. So we're opening up this massive. So Pig Beach Brooklyn is roughly eighteen thousand square feet. Long Island City is like twenty eight thousand square feet. I mean, it's huge, (laughs) it's huge, but the way we have it set up is going to be absolutely incredible. I'm so excited for everybody to come and see it and enjoy it. Basically the same program we're doing over here, just uh, with a couple of added menu items that sort of meets the demographic of that neighborhood a little bit more. A lot of fun weekly specials if we can get back to the point of doing that too. So there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon. We're, We're opening up another location in West Palm Beach, Florida, this fall winter kinda depends upon permitting and the build out being completed. But we're just in a really cool spot right now to see where it goes and hopefully, you know, knock on wood. It continues to go in the right direction. There's no more pandemic pandemics to shut us down for another year, year and a half, and we're able to just have the the regular stress of owning and operating a restaurant business versus the added stress of doing it in COVID.
0: What
2: triggers the decision to go to Florida?
1: That's a great question. So Rob Schroger moved down there three years ago. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> and he, he was like, I won't, let's do a pig beach down in Florida. And the cool thing about Florida, cost of living is a lot less. Rents are a lot less. I mean, New York. as much as I love New York City, I've been in New York City now for almost 14 years. Met the love of my life here. Got married. Had a baby here. There's so many things I'm forever grateful for in New York City. Operating and running a business in this city is so much more challenging just because of the restrictions and the regulations and the, and the costs, I mean, the costs associated with doing business here is it's really yeah. challenging. It's really really hard. And Florida is a different gambit. There's furthermore, you could do twenty-four
0: minute risottos all day long <laughs> down in Florida, and nobody <laughs> <wear laughs> switches. Yeah, you know? that's right. <laughs> and that no is in- a very good point.
2: <laughs> and then no income
0: tax. Yeah, there. Yeah, no state income tax. Right. That's That's a good perk. So too. let me <laughs> ask you, like, how. How big is the immediate team that's helping move all these mechanics? I mean, you've got a lot of not irons big in enough. the fire. <laughs> not big enough. <laughs> Actually,
1: as I was driving to work today, I was on a call with one of our good buddies who's been you know, not directly related to the Pig Beach program, but it's been a good, close chef friend that's had his own restaurant and done his own thing. Um, that's kind of in a little bit of a transitionary period where we're trying to scoop him up to help us out too. But, you know, I have four business partners. You know, Rob Schauger was our founder, the guy that started it. Uh, me, Shane McBride, used to be the corporate chef of uh, Balthazar Group, Keith McNally. Uh, Dennis Liu, who uh, was one of Rob's like biggest clients. They both work in the finance world. And Gary Kravitz, um, who's kind of like our lawyer, counsel uh, partner in the mix. So of those five guys, there's really only the two of us, Shane and I, that are physical boots on the ground. Rob sort of Rob and Dennis and Gary help raise all the money, take care of the legal stuff, take care of like contracts and the negotiations um we have we, we have an incredible team here in brooklyn many of whom for back of house came over with me from del posto or from other restaurants that i've worked at that moved to the city like chef maddie went i to work with you again i'm like come on in come on in. I, I know what you could do get over here um and you know right now like i said earlier it's hard to get staff because we're at a point now where we're trying to staff back up brooklyn to get to the point where we can be six days a week like we were before we just haven't been able to because we physically can't get the bodies in here to hmm. do that. I mean, it's been challenging. So, that raises another just challenge that I, I know we'll overcome and we'll get there, but like hiring the right staff and getting people back to work for Long Island City will also have another challenge in its place. But the great thing is, is that throughout you know, our five partners, we've made incredible connections to great engineers and architects and kitchen designers and, and all the people that they get the restaurants built and be put into the right place to get them opened. And we have a great core team of people that are boots on the ground that just help make this day operate every single day. Like I couldn't do what I do every day without my chef now, Stephen Fugati, who basically runs the culinary program here and Santiago who basically oversees all the purchasing, the receiving, the prep team. So those two guys here are absolute crucial core components to everything we do every single day. We have a couple more guys like that in, in the, uh, the holster to get over to Long Island City to get opened up, but every business and every restaurant needs all the everyday people to work and fit those components of the cogs in the wheel too, that all are very, very meaningful. So it's, that's probably one of the biggest challenges we're facing at the moment is getting the team in place to do these expansion things, but the core people we have, which is really great. For,
2: for another challenge, I know we t- just talked about proteins and all that. How have you been battling the recent wing prices and now the dude, rib prices dude, and all miserable. that stuff? It's
1: miserable. <laughs> it's miserable. Right, right now, we're paying more We're paying more for, for proteins than I've ever, ever seen. Like, for example, chicken wings. You Bring up right. chicken wings, right? Yeah. Chicken we're wings. Dogs. When chicken wings were first invented, they were basically given away at the Anchorage Bar in Buffalo, New York because nobody wanted them. Yep. They found a way of tossing them with hot sauce and butter. Sold. to give them out, <laughs> to make people thirsty to get them to drink more beer. Right. Like That was the reason that chicken wings got cooked, was to get people to drink more beer. And now chicken wings have become such a hot commodity that it's a sought-after protein to put on many, many menus right. either as an appetizer or an entree. One and a half years ago, I was paying roughly around $2 to $2.15 a pound for jumbo party wings. And for those of you listening, party wings basically just means that they're cut into the flat and the drummy. Whereas just wings are like they're connected and they still have the little flipper thing on it yeah. Yeah. that nobody wants. So you either pay a little extra I, to my get grandmother them cut. That's what oh, she does? Oh, yeah. Like sucking on the, the yeah. flipper part? Weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, most <laughs> people here in our generation do not like that part. It's like, yeah, it's just yeah, it's or just stock. Yeah. Right? Put in For the stock. But we don't really make stocks here in Pig <laughs> B, so it's a different gambit. Um, we went from paying around two to two fifteen a pound. Now chicken wings were the last time we purchased them was like four twenty eight yep. a pound. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Beef brisket, we had a great <laughs> rate going on beef briskets. We were paying around three, three and a quarter a pound for prime beef briskets, 15 nice. pounds. Yeah. Like we respect big boys here in Big Beach. They're About now, how many
3: briskets do you go through per week? That's a great question. Let me
1: finish this thought, and then I'll hit that one. Yeah. Um, we're paying now for brisket around 5 50 to $6 a pound for briskets. I mean, it's crazy. Yep. Baby back ribs, forget it. You can't even get them. Peeled anymore? The, 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 the plants... It's not It's not a It's not a product issue. It's a processing issue. That's yeah, causing, they just don't have the personnel to, to process all yeah. the meats. They have all the cattle. They have all the livestock, but they just physically don't have enough people to process to meet the current demand of what there is. And as a result, low inventory creates higher demand, which drives prices through the roof. I mean, you'd probably know more you about know. that than me. But on we,
2: we battle with even taking wings off the menu, but then we decide people come for make, wings. Make, a, make a trip for them because yeah. they're different, you know. You know, we're smoking in. No,
1: our wings but. are one of our top selling items yeah. here in the menu. It's our number like, we can never, yeah. never take them off. And the, and the hard thing, the hardest thing to convey to the consumer is when prices go up, when cost of goods go up, when cost of labor goes up, when in order to get people back to work, you need to give them an incentive that's more than what they're currently doing without having to go to work, it raises the cost of everything to operate. And in turn, the only way that that business can survive is they then have to raise their prices, everything. And it's not something that a business ever wants to do because we also understand that we want people to come and feel comfortable with what they're spending. Um, But at the same sense, like if you don't, you go out of business. So it's like this really horrible cycle of which we're hoping to see relief on the meat side of the market sooner than later. But I mean, it's affecting everybody from, from trucks to deliveries, We're, we've been working, our primary vendors that we work with are currently trying to find other alternatives to whether it's an overnight drop or they get a key and they drop the product in the walk-in so they can have a, a person do that driving shift at night. Or another company that I was just talking to, they're working on, on downgrading the size of their trucks to smaller trucks so they can get less experienced drivers to do the deliveries because, uh, the wholesalers, are finding themselves just canceling deliveries because they physically don't have drivers to bring wow. the product.
2: I actually, I ha- heard uh, a story where a driver refused the delivery because the invoice was too high and they didn't have enough insurance for the truck because of meat prices, the meat prices went up so much. So like the invoice for the truck was like 750,000 and the driver refused it because like it was over their insurance cap for if something were that's to happen. Yeah. bananas. Yeah, no,
1: it's, but it's scary, man. It's a real thing that's happening and it's just another good old hurdle in the restaurant <laughs> business that we go through every single day. Um, what was it? What was the question you just? How asked? many briskets you guys go oh, through? So per how week? many briskets? So pre pre COVID, that's a great question. Here at Pig Beach, pre COVID, um, between the months of May and I would let's say October, we would probably go through twenty call it twenty Tuesday, twenty Wednesday, thirty Thursday, fifty Friday, sixty to eighty on Saturday. <laughs> And then like another forty on Sunday, so whatever quite, the math like, is if I it all up together, oh, it's nuts. <laughs> I mean, it's nuts. We don't fit like how we have you, a big walk-in. Yeah, so walk how many in. can you fit in your we, smoker? We at once. have a fourteen by twelve foot walk-in, which is a pretty large walk-in. Yeah. And during peak summer times, like there's it's just meat stacked upon dungey racks from the from the dungey rack to the ceiling. Yeah. And it's bananas. And uh, one of these old hickory pits that we have, we have two of them. We have two of the EDELX models, which are the rotisserie units. Yep. They can each hold up to about forty briskets each. Okay. About uh, eighty pork shoulders and hundred and twenty racks of ribs each. So we would physically have two of those smokers going through the night yeah. and then through the day, like just all like uh, alternating cook times to have everything be coming off the smokers fresh throughout the day, of just briskets. And then we have two of their CTO double wide units that we would cook whatever i mean we just everything, everything just else <laughs> non-stop going and then some days when we have the trailer parked over in the corner over there we would even fire that up too because we just need the physical space to cook things it was kind of
3: that's got to be a logistical nightmare deciding what to put on when so it all comes out when it needs to well
1: starting off yes it was crazy but yeah. we're at a point now where the team has trained up well enough where we know uh, what needs to go on and when and, and pars i mean that that's a harder part is yeah. trying to anticipate pars like you know, Dark Sky has been our best friend in the last five years of operating uh, the weather app just to know, okay, if it's going to pour today, we know that maybe 20% of our expected guests will come versus the whole gambit, so maybe we cook less Yeah, because you don't
3: want to have to cool, then reheat, then cool, then reheat again. Exactly. Barbecue is one of those things
1: where it's always better when it's fresh off the smokers. Um, You want it
2: out and just cutting it.
1: Hold it. Like, rest it. (laughs) Slice it, serve it. Yeah. How often are you selling out of things? Well, that's the thing about New York, man. You sell out, people get pissed. I yeah. know. So, so typically the asking. goal would
3: be to sell out every night, so you start over the day with fresh stuff, but you can't Correct. do that here. Correct.
1: But our program is kind of like what we've, we've, we've found an incredible way to sort of suspend um, the product after it's been cooked to, so that it can be reheated the next day to be used, primarily okay. in things like the baked beans mm-hmm. or collard greens or onto a sandwich. Where we're always having the barbecue that's being served, as just straight barbecue. Like if you're getting a half a pound or a pound of brisket, it's always fresh off the cooker that day. Um, but the baked beans, obviously, we're not going to waste a fresh cooked brisket to like chop up, you know, the ends and put into that. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the restaurants they use, the old brisket. I mean, the Kansas City uh, burnt ends. That's basically brisket that didn't get served yesterday, cut in cubes, glazed in barbecue sauce, and reserved. Yep. And some people love that better than the actual barbecue. Burnt ends is people what people come off all, all the time for, and. You know, tr- for me, traditional burnt ends is just—it's the ends of the brisket that just have that extra crispier yeah. bark on them. So there'll be people that will come to Pig Beach and they'll say, "Hey, can I get burnt ends?" I'm like, "Well, we don't really do that here," but I'm like, "I'm more than happy to cut off the ends of the brisket." They're like, yeah, that's what I want. I want the ends. <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, we got you." Got gotcha.
2: you. So you don't—you don't do it either. The I say either. Like you no. would not. No. But yeah, we don't. As far as like the
1: burnt ends, like the classic Kansas City style, yeah. where they're yeah. cubed and cut into bar, a glaze of barbecue sauce and just baked in the oven to be reheated. No, we don't—we don't do that here. Although we have a demand for it all the time. I don't know why I haven't done it here. <laughs> Probably it's because like we have such a small facility to produce the volumes of what we produce here that yeah. it becomes really challenging. And if you look at our core menu here at Pig Beach, it's basically five core barbecue items, five core grilled items, and five to six sides. Three sandwiches. Three desserts. That's our menu in its entirety. Pre-COVID, we had a daily special that would happen... Tuesday through Sunday would be something different. we changed change those up quarterly. But if you wanted to come to Pig Beach on Tuesday for, for tacos, and you wanted to come on Thursdays for tri-tip, or you wanted to come on Sundays for whole hog. Like, that was sort of the program that we were in prior to COVID. Um, and then from time to time, I'll just get cheeky and want to make something fun and different, and I'll put a, you know, a different special up on the board to sell, too. We, I was going through a really fun phase, which I was having so much fun with. Um, it was like the rib of the week, mm-hmm. and I was doing – like fun with ribs. So every single week, I was doing a different play on a baby back rib, a very non traditional barbecue flavoring. Something from like moho ribs to Lebanese ribs that were finished with what I was calling New York City white sauce, which is basically like an <laughs> old to the halal guy's food truck, yeah. the white sauce on the chicken and rice. Nice. I like uh, that. Bins, uh, uh, Ribs, Al Pastor, uh, Char Sioux ribs. I mean, I was just all jerk ribs all over the map. Yeah. Just trying to find iconic flavor profiles of things that I love to eat that. We're spoiled here in New York City that you can get really anywhere and applying them into a really fun way to work on a baby back rib and then having a really cool accoutrement or sauce, whether it be a barbecue sauce or dipping sauce or something to go along with it to make it a lot of fun. So I look forward to getting back into that gamut of things and having a lot of fun with that. But, you know, it's it's been an incredible journey and the, and the doors that have been opened through having Pig Beach for me, um, whether it's within food TV or like the Today Show or Food Network or any of those incredible opportunities. I just did some Dr. Oz segments, which was amazing. Dr. Oz, you're the best. We love you. Today Show family, I love you guys. Food Network people, love you too. Have me on more if you're listening. <laughs> um, but I've been I've been exposed to so many really cool things, and I'm so truly blessed because of it that I, I'm just super, super grateful to where I am today, and I hope that I can continue to you know, make all of our team proud and continue to grow this brand to get it to a point where – one day I can retire and hopefully not have to work 16-hour days, six days a week anymore and spend more time with my family and do all that sort of good stuff. When you're talking about, you know,
0: the cost of all these meats going up and, like, just barbecue in general being an expensive business to be in, it like, to me, it almost just makes sense to figure out how to increase the booze sales heavily. Like, at, at what point? I mean, we just came from an event out here, what was that, three weeks ago, four weeks ago? The, the
1: brisket, brisket king. king. brisket yeah. King. yeah. yeah. About three weeks And again. like
0: the line of people just trying to get booze like paid yeah. for, even though free booze is outside also, right? Like yep. they don't care. They're here spending money. They want to have the beers. They want to have the cocktails that you have. and Well, the
1: other part that's amazing about our program here at Pig Beach is that we are this amazing, incredible barbecue restaurant, but we're also sort of craft cocktail beer garden. And that is typically our sales are pretty close to being split 50-50 uh, between food and booze. And... When I tell you, we'll go through. We'll, we'll. The, at the end of the day, the sales report will show we sold a thousand frozes in the <laughs> summertime. Like I'm not kidding. It'll be a thousand frozes. Uh, and big things, craft beers in this neighborhood of Brooklyn. People go bananas for the IPAs these days, which are really high alcohol contact beers too. And they come in the tall boy cans that we serve here. So you have like three of those, and you're already like in a good, happy place. But booze is a crucial component, and that's what I think makes this model of Pig Beach work and succeed is the fact that we have this really cool concept that's kind of unique for a barbecue place. I mean, I'm not saying that we're, we've certainly broken the mold. I mean, we're a lot of barbecue places have a similar philosophy behind it, but being able to have the spots that have this big outdoor space attached to them that are very beverage focused on having really fun, refreshing, playful cocktails and frozen drinks and things like that, in addition to really delicious barbecue and burgers and sausages and hot dogs and fun things like that, it's It works and it's just a really cool, fun environment. And if you were to ask me six years ago before this thing started, would there be a line with a two hour wait of people going over the bridge of the canal waiting to get in to go to Pig Beach? I'd be like, there's no freaking way. And I mean, it's crazy to me. I mean, the lines now are obviously longer because we're still under restrictions of how many people we can physically have into our space and everyone has to be seated at a table and there's only X amount of seats. So for those of you that have come and have had to wait outside in line, I totally apologize and I totally feel your pain and frustration. We're almost out of it. Well, hopefully we'll be able to get you and process you in sooner. And thank you for coming. Do so
2: you... I have a question. Are we going to see a Gothenburger pop up? Here? Yes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> probably pretty soon. I mean, we just won Burger Bash. Yeah, that's, so I brought, that's why to I brought it up. So we certainly have to bring my boy Mike Puma. Big shout out to Mike Puma. Oh yeah. Good friend of ours. We've been doing, helping him with his brand of Gothenburger. Uh, he makes an incredible smash burger uh it's really just what he does is sort of the nostalgic diner style or fast food burger that everyone grew up within my generation i'm older yeah. than you guys but <laughs> that we grew up with prior to big corporate companies sort of changing the philosophy and the quality of the products going into it um so it's just that perfect beautiful flavor profile griddled so he had that crispy uh section crunch of the hamburger and all that flavor with the griddle onions And on the best bun in all the land, Martin's Potato (laughs) Roll, you can never go wrong with that. I mean, Mike did say that he was looking for an operations director or manager pretty much to (laughs) open up a space.
0: That was said on one of the previous podcasts in which we spoke to him.
1: Yeah, we've been trying to help Mike out any way we can. He needs to get a spot open, especially after coming off of, of this win in Burger Bash in Miami. So
0: to transition that thought, like he's got a lot of publicity right Mm -hmm. and it's it's great it's a great thing and then the question is how do you get that return on investment back well it drives further lines going forward into whatever the next pop-up is and considering we just did brisket king here and we saw how many bodies were moving around and how many cameras are taking photos you know justin was just talking about on one of the previous episodes like what's the return on investment when you do events like this like are you looking to just make money right there or are you just getting the
1: brand solidified to be a contender? And you know, that's a great question Uh, or is it just fun and many of those events that we host like brisket King, we we sort of did that as a courtesy to Jimmy Carbone to offer him a space to hold it because he couldn't find a space and he wanted to do it outside. And I mean, Jimmy throws a great party. He's been doing brisket King, rib King pig Island for however long he's been doing any of that. And he's become a really true dear friend. Um, and we just wanted to be able to help them out with that and also be a part of for what for us was the first return to a barbecue gathering event since the pandemic. And I so actually said that when we were here, I was like, look how nice this is. Everybody's here. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Right? And relaxed. people felt comfortable. People. And yeah. I mean, even though that there were, were a lot of people here, it was outside and the people that were there that wanted Everybody to be here, happy. they felt comfortable. They yeah. felt happy. Nobody was like, Oh my God, I have to get out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous or scared. I mean, people felt comfortable for the most part. And obviously we, we wanted to intentionally set it up that way. Um, but, you know, Jimmy throws a great event and we just wanted to be there to help him for it. So that's an interesting question, though. When we do events like that or pop ups with, with Mike or uh, host events like Pig Island or um, the Jeff, the Jeff Missioner barbecue benefit that we've hosted the last couple of years, we didn't do it last year because of COVID, but you don't necessarily make money off a lot of these things. A lot of these events uh, are either going towards a foundation or a charity to which you're trying to you know, do your part for the community and help out for. Obviously, you're hoping to drive a lot of recognition and word of mouth and media attention when you're doing those events as well. And uh, you you go from there. I mean, the, the, the heart and soul and the bread and butter of what you're making financially to push the restaurants forward is hopefully a result that comes after, as you said, the return on investment of getting that sort of publicity and getting your name out there. It's taken us six years for Pig Beach to sort of be, I think, at a point now where people know of us. Like, you come to New York City and somebody's going to ask you about barbecue, they're going to say, you know, Billy Durney Hometown Barbecue, Pig Beach Barbecue, um, uh, or any of the guys that were here at that Briscoe King event. yeah. Yeah, Blue Smoke or, you know, Hill Country, places like that. Like, we're on now the conversation of a lot of these epic barbecue joints, which for me is surreal. It's amazing and honored to be a part of those names. So it's it's... You know, you do these things as a hope that it gets your name out there more and people want to come and patronize you more and support you more. And outside of that, they come and they have this incredible experience or a great product. and like, wow, Pig Beach is legit. Like, they make some great barbecue. And the space is super fun. We just had a total impromptu 30th birthday party for my buddy. And we all left super happy, super drunk, super full and, and had a great time. So, yeah, you hope those returns on investments, they pay out down the road. But I would say, you know, we have this space that we're sitting in now, which is our private event space that would sit vacant in the wintertime where most people, most restaurants are having their busiest time of the year with throwing parties or holiday gatherings for corporate events and whatnot. We're finally at a point now where people are, we're a sought after spot for people to have functions and have gatherings for that sort of stuff during the holidays, where we already have people booking events now for (laughs) November and December, which we didn't have previously, which would like... Want me to bang my head against this table and say why don't people come? And, and you know, part of it is because you're just you're not there yet. You're not known yet. People don't know that you even do that sort of thing yet. And with any business, it just takes time to build a reputation or build that sort of word to mouth so that people will come and know who you are and know where you are and what you do. And obviously, a lot of that is attested to all the incredible people listening now that have come here and hopefully had a great experience and say, wow, let's total. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, why not have our 30th birthday party there? Why not have Our engagement dinner there? Why not have the day after our wedding brunch there? Why not have our corporate holiday party there? And that means the world to me to be able to know that people get excited to come in and say well Pig Beach is you can come in and have a rack of ribs or a burger but they'll also do a 150 pound pig for you in the style that they do in Memphis and May and win with as sort of a really fun showpiece to have something special or different. I mean we've even gone as far as to we've whole smoked a swordfish with the the bill on to pull and make tacos out of it. I mean, we're we're kind <laughs> That's of nuts, but but what's fun? I mean, but what makes it fun is that you know we're we're not just barbecue people. We're, culinarily trained, fine dining chefs that decided to take a little bit of a, a, a detour into this del- beautiful realm of barbecue, but still having that attention to detail and flavor, and approach to food that kind of makes us a little bit fun and unique to do fun, cool things like that.
0: Enjoy the episode. We speak with owners and operators everywhere about their journeys and hardships that build their brands. We hope to shine light on the gems that can help you increase sales, efficiency, and ideas in your locations throughout these conversations. A lot goes into these episodes, and we'd be quite appreciative of you cruising over to the Patreon page and supporting the podcast, patreon.com slash waiting on fries. This has been On The Record with Matt Abdu of Pig Beach.